Oh boy, everything breaks loose in this episode. We really get to the bottom of this mystery, and a lot of life-threatening stuff happens, so that's always fun. I'm going to throw it out there again. If you or somebody that you know has an audiobook that you'd like to hear on Another World Audiobooks, I'd love to talk to you about that. Always looking for indie authors who want to get their work out there, and are happy to do anything that I can to introduce you guys to new authors. So remember, you can go back and listen to all those bonus episodes. There's quite a few of them right now. Um, and hopefully we'll be getting some more here soon. So thanks guys for listening, and without further ado, i give you the next two chapters. So, sign up for Chapter 9. A Break in the Chain It was late in the afternoon before I woke, strengthened and refreshed. Sherlock Holmes still sat exactly as I had left him, save that he had laid aside his violin and was deep in a book. He looked across at me as I stirred, and I noticed that his face was dark and troubled. You have slept soundly, he said. I feared that our talk would wake you. I heard nothing, I answered. Have you had fresh news, then? Unfortunately, no. I confess that I am surprised and disappointed. I expected something definite by this time. Wiggins has just been up to report. He says that no trace can be found of the launch. It is a provoking check, for every hour is of importance. Can I do anything? I am perfectly fresh now, and quite ready for another night's outing. No, we can do nothing. We can only wait. If we go ourselves, the message might come in our absence, and delay be caused. You can do what you will, but I must remain on guard. Then I shall run over to Camberwell and call upon Mrs. Cecil Forrester. She asked me to yesterday. On Mrs. Cecil Forrester? asked Holmes with a twinkle of a smile in his eyes. Well, of course, Miss Morstan too. They were anxious to hear what happened. I would not tell them too much, said Holmes. Women are never to be entirely trusted, not the best of them. I did not pause to argue over this atrocious sentiment. I shall be back in an hour or two, I remarked. All right, good luck, but I say, if you are crossing the river, you may as well return Toby, for I don't think that it is at all likely that we shall have any use for him now. I took our mongrel accordingly, and left him together with a half-sovereign at the old naturalist's in Pynchon Lane. At Camberwell, I found Miss Morstan a little weary after her nice adventures, but very eager to hear the news. Mrs. Forrester, too, was full of curiosity. I told them all that we had done, suppressing, however, the more dreadful parts of the tragedy. Thus, although I spoke of Mr. Sholto's death, I said nothing of the exact manner and method of it. With all my omissions, however, there was enough to startle and amaze them. "'It is a romance!' cried Mrs. Forrester. "'An injured lady, half a million in treasure, a black cannibal, and a wooden-legged ruffian. They take the place of the conventional dragon or wicked earl.' and two knight-errants to the rescue, added Miss Morstan with a bright glance at me. Why, Mary, your fortune depends upon the issue of this search. I don't think that you are nearly excited enough. Just imagine what it must be to be so rich, and to have the world at your feet. It sent a thrill of joy to my heart, to notice that she showed no sign of elation at the prospect. On the contrary, she gave a toss of her proud head, as though the matter were one in which she took small interest. It is for Mr. Thaddeus Shelter that I am anxious she said. Nothing else is of any consequence, but I think that he has behaved most kindly and honourably throughout. It is our duty to clear him of this dreadful and unfounded charge. It was evening before I left Camberwell, and quite dark by the time I reached home. My companion's book and pipe lay by his chair, but he had disappeared. I looked about in the hope of seeing a note, but there was none. I suppose that Mr. Sherlock Holmes has gone out, I said to Mrs. Hudson as she came up to lower the blinds. 
No, sir, he's gone into his room, sir. Do you know, sir? Sinking her voice into an impressive whisper. I'm afraid for his health. Why so, Mrs. Hudson? Well, he's that strange, sir. After he was gone, he walked and he walked up and down and up and down until I was weary of the sound of his footsteps. Then I heard him talking to himself and muttering, and every time the bell rang out, he came onto the stairhead with, What is that, Mrs. Hudson? And now he's slammed off to his room, but I can hear him walking away the same as ever. I hope he's not going to be ill, sir. I ventured to say something to him about cooling medicine, but he turned on me, sir, with such a look that I don't know how I ever got out of this room. I don't think you have any cause to be uneasy, Mrs. Hudson, I answered. I have seen him like this before. He has some small matter upon his mind which makes him restless. I tried to speak lightly to our worthy landlady, but I was myself somewhat uneasy when through the long night I still from time to time heard the dull sound of his tread, and knew how his keen spirit was chafing against this involuntary inaction. At breakfast time he looked worn and haggard, and a little fleck of feverish colour upon either cheek. "'You were knocking yourself up, old man,' I remarked. "'I heard you marching about in the night.' "'No, I couldn't sleep,' he answered. "'This infernal problem is consuming me. "'It is too much to be balked by so petty an obstacle "'when all else has been overcome. "'I know the men, the launch, everything, "'and yet I can get no news. "'I have set other agencies at work "'and used every means at my disposal. "'The whole river has been searched on either side, "'but there is no news, "'nor has Mrs. Smith heard from her husband.' I shall come to the conclusion soon that they have scuttled the craft, but there are objections to that. Or that Mrs. Smith has put us on wrong scent. No, I think that may be dismissed. I had made inquiries, and there is a launch for that description. Could it have gone up the river? I have considered that possibility too, and there is a search party who will work up as far as Richmond. If no news comes today, I shall start off myself tomorrow, and go for the men rather than the boat. But surely... Surely we shall hear something. We did not, however. Not a word came to us, either from Wiggins or from the other agencies. There were articles in most of the papers upon the Norwood tragedy. They all appeared to be rather hostile to the unfortunate Thaddeus Shelto. No fresh details were to be found, however, in any of them, save that an inquest was to be held upon the following day. I walked over to Camberwell in the evening to report our ill success to the ladies, and on my return I found Holmes dejected and somewhat morose. He would hardly reply to my questions, and busied himself all evening in an obtruse chemical analysis which involved much heating of retorts and distilling of vapours, ending at last in a smell which fairly drove me out of the apartment. Up to the small hours of the morning, I could hear the clinking of his test-tubes, which told me that he was still engaged in his malodorous experiment. In the early dawn, I woke with a start, and was surprised to find him standing by my bedside, clad in a rude sailor dress with a pea-jacket and a coarse red scarf round his neck. I'm off down the river, Watson, said he. I've been turning it over in my mind, and I can see only one way out of it. It is worth trying at all events. Surely I can come with you, then, said I. No, you can be much more useful if you will remain here as my representative. I am loath to go, for it is quite on the cards that some message may come during the day, though Wiggins was despondent about it last night. I want you to open all notes and telegrams, and to act on your own judgment if any news should come. Can I rely upon you? Most certainly. I am afraid that you will not be able to wire to me, for I can hardly tell yet where I may find myself. If I am in luck, however, I may not be gone so very long. I shall have news of some sort or other before I get back. I heard nothing of him by breakfast time. On opening the standard, however, I found that there was a fresh allusion to the business. 
With reference to the Upper Norwood tragedy, it remarked, we have reason to believe that the matter promises to be even more complex and mysterious than was originally supposed. Fresh evidence has shown that it is quite impossible that Mr. Thaddeus Shelto could have been in any way connected in the matter. He and the housekeeper, Mrs. Burnstone, were both released yesterday evening. It is believed, however, that the police have a clue as to the real culprits, and that it is being prosecuted by Mr. Athenley Jones of Scotland Yard, with his well-known energy and sagacity. Further arrests may be expected at any moment. That is satisfactory so far as it goes, thought I. Friend Shelto is safe at any rate. I wonder what the fresh clue may be, though it seems to be a stereotype form whenever the police have made a blunder. I tossed the paper down upon the table, but at that moment, my eye caught an advertisement in the agony column. It ran in this way. Lost. Whereas Mordecai Smith, Boatman, and his son, Jim, left Smith's Wharf at or about three o'clock last Tuesday morning in the steam launch Aurora, black with two red stripes, funnel black with a white band, the sum of five pounds will be paid to anyone who can give information to Mrs. Smith at Smith's Wharf or at 221B Baker Street as to the whereabouts of the said Mordecai Smith and the launch Aurora. This was certainly Holmes's doing. The Baker Street address was enough to prove that. It struck me as rather ingenious, because it might be read by the fugitives without seeing in it more than the natural anxiety of a wife for her missing husband. It was a long day. Every time that a knock came at the door, or a sharp step passed in the street, I imagined that it was either Holmes returning, or an answer to his advertisement. I tried to read, but my thoughts would wander off on strange quests, and to the ill-assorted and villainous pair whom we were pursuing. Could there be, I wondered, some radical flaw in my companion's reasoning? Might he be suffering from some huge self-deception? Was it not possible that his nimble and speculative mind had built up this wild theory upon faulty premises? I had never known him to be wrong, and yet the keenest reasoner may occasionally be deceived. He was likely, I thought, to fall into error through the over-refinement of his logic. His preference for a subtle and bizarre explanation when a plainer and more commonplace one lay ready to his hand. Yet, on the other hand, I had myself seen the evidence, and I had heard the reasons for his deductions. When I looked back on the long chain of curious circumstances, many of them trivial in themselves, but all tending in the same direction, I could not disguise from myself that even if Holmes's explanation were incorrect, the true theory must be equally outré and startling. At three o'clock in the afternoon there was a loud peal at the bell, an authoritative voice in the hall, and, to my surprise, no less a person than Mr. Athenley Jones was shown up to me. Very different was he, however, from the brusque and masterful professor of common sense who had taken over the case so confidently at Upper Norwood. His expression was downcast, and his bearing meek and even apologetic. "'Good day, sir, good day,' said he. "'Mr. Sherlock Holmes is out, I understand?' "'Yes, and I cannot be sure when he will be back, but perhaps you would care to wait. Take that chair, or try one of these cigars.' "'Thank you. I don't mind if I do.' said he, mopping his face with a red bandana handkerchief. And a whiskey and soda? Well, have a glass. It's very hot for the time of year. I've had a good deal to worry him try me. You know my theory about this Dorwood case? I remember that you expressed one. Well, I have been obliged to reconsider it. I had my net drawn tightly round Mr. Shelto, sir, when, pop, he went through a hole in the middle of it. He was able to prove an alibi which could not be shaken. From the time that he left his brother's room, he was never out of sight of someone or other, so it could not be he who climbed over roofs and through trapdoors. It's a very dark case, and my professional credit is at stake. I should be very glad of a little uh, assistance. We all need help sometimes, said I. 
Your friend Sherlock Holmes is a wonderful man, sir, said he in a husky and confidential voice. He's a man who is not to be beat. I've known that young man go into a good many cases, but I never saw the case yet where he could not throw light upon it. He is irregular in his methods, and a little quick perhaps in jumping at theories, but on the whole, I think he would have made a most promising officer, and I don't care who knows it. I've had a wire from him this morning, by which I understand that he has got some clue to this shelter business. Here is the message. He took the telegram out of his pocket and handed it to me. It was dated from Poplar at twelve o'clock. Go to Baker Street at once, it said. If I have not returned, wait for me. I am close on the track of the Shelto gang. You can come with us tonight if you want to be in at the finish. This sounds well. He has evidently picked up the scent again, said I. Ah, then, he has been at fault too, exclaimed Jones with evident satisfaction. Even the best of us are thrown off sometimes. Of course, this may prove to be a false alarm, but it is my duty as an officer of the law to allow no chance to slip. But there is someone at the door. Perhaps it is he. A heavy step was heard ascending the stair, with a great wheezing and rattling, as from a man who was sorely put to for breath. Once or twice he stopped, as though the climb were too much for him, but at last he made his way to our door and entered. His appearance corresponded to the sounds which we had heard. He was an aged man, clad in seafaring garb, with an old pea-jacket buttoned up to his throat. His back was bowed, his knees were shaky, and his breath was painfully asthmatic. As he leaned upon a thick oaken cudgel, his shoulders heaved in the effort to draw the air into his lungs. He had a coloured scarf round his chin, and I could see little of his face save a pair of keen, dark eyes, overhung by bushy white brows and long grey side-whiskers. Altogether, he gave me the impression of a respectable master mariner who had fallen into years in poverty. "'What is it, my man?' I asked. He looked about him in the slow, methodical fashion of old age. "'Is Mr. Sherlock Holmes here?' said he. "'No, but I am acting for him. You can tell me any message you have for him.' "'It was to him himself I was to tell it,' said he. "'But I tell you that I am acting for him. Was it about Mordecai Smith's boat?' "'Yes, I know well where it is, and I knows where the men he's after are, and I knows where the treasure is. I knows all about it.' Then tell me, and I shall let him know. It was to him I was to tell it, he repeated with the petulant obstinacy of a very old man. Well, you must wait for him. No, no, I ain't going to lose a whole day to please no one. If Mr. Holmes ain't here, then Mr. Holmes must find it all out for himself. I don't care about the look of either of you, and I won't tell a word. He shuffled towards the door, but Athenley Jones got in front of him. "'Wait a bit, my friend,' said he. "'You have important information, and you must not walk off. Uh, "'We shall keep you, whether you like it or not, until our friend returns.' The old man made a little run towards the door, but as Athenley Jones put his broad back up against it, he recognized the uselessness of resistance. "'Pretty sore treatment, this,' he cried, stamping his stick. "'I come here to see a gentleman. "'You two, who I never saw in my life, sees me and treat me in this fashion.' "'You will be none the worse,' I said. "'We shall recompense you for the loss of your time. "'Sit over here on the sofa, and you will not have long to wait.' "'He came sullenly enough, and seated himself with his face resting on his hands. "'Jones and I resumed our cigars and our talk. "'Suddenly, however, Holmes's voice broke in upon us. "'I think that you might offer me a cigar, too,' he said. "'We both started in our chairs. 
There was Holmes sitting close to us with an air of quiet amusement. Holmes! I exclaimed. You here? But where is the old man? Here is the old man, said he, holding out a heap of white hair. Here he is. Wig, whiskers, eyebrows, and all. I thought my disguise was pretty good, but I hardly expected that it would stand that test. Oh, you rogue! cried Jones, highly delighted. You would have made an actor, and a rare one. You had the proper workhouse cough, and those weak legs of yours are worth ten pounds a week. I thought I knew the glint of your eyes, though. You didn't get away from us so easily, you see. I've been working in that get-up all day, said he, lighting his cigar. You see, a good many of the criminal classes begin to know me, especially since our friend here took to publishing some of my cases, so I can only go out on the warpath under some simple disguise like this. You got my wire? Yes, that was what brought me here. How has your case prospered? It has all come to nothing. I have had to release two of my prisoners, and there is no evidence against the other two. Never mind. We shall give you two others in place of them. But you must put yourself under my orders. You are welcome to all the official credit, but you must act on the line that I point out. Is that agreed? Entirely, if you will help me to the men. Well then, in the first place I shall want a fast police boat, a steam launch, to be at the Westminster Stairs at seven o'clock. That is easily managed. There's always one about there, but I can step across the road and telephone to make sure. Then I shall want two staunch men in case of resistance. There will be two or three in the boat. What else? When we secure the men, we shall get the treasure. I think that it would be a pleasure to my friend here to take the box round to the young lady to whom half of it rightfully belongs. Let her be the first to open it. Eh, Watson? It would be a great pleasure to me. Rather. Rather an irregular proceeding, said Jones, shaking his head. However, the whole thing is irregular, and I suppose we must wink at it. The treasure must afterwards be handed over to the authorities until after the official investigation. Certainly. That is easily managed. One other point. I should much like to have a few details about this matter from the lips of Jonathan Small himself. You know I like to work the details of my cases out. There is no objection to me having an unofficial interview with him, either here in my rooms or elsewhere, as long as he is efficiently guarded. Well, you are master of the situation. I have no proof yet of the existence of this Jonathan Small. However, if you can catch him, I don't see how I can refuse you an interview with him. That is understood, then? Perfectly. Is there anything else? Only that I insist upon you dining with us. It will be ready in half an hour. I have oysters and a brace of grouse, with something a little choice in white wines. Watson, you have never yet recognized my merits as a housekeeper. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Chapter 10. The End of the Islander Our meal was a merry one. Holmes could talk exceedingly well when he chose, and that night he did choose. He appeared to be in a state of nervous exultation. I have never known him so brilliant. He spoke on a quick succession of topics. On miracle plays, on medieval poetry, on Stradivarius violins, on the Buddhism of Ceylon, and on the warships of the future, handling each as though he had made a special study of it. His bright humour marked the reaction from his black depression of the preceding days. Athenley Jones proved to be a sociable soul in his hours of relaxation, and faced his dinner with the air of a bon vivant. For myself, I felt elated at the thought that we were now nearing the end of our task, and I caught something of Holmes's gaiety. None of us alluded during dinner to the cause which had brought us together. When the cloth was cleared, Holmes glanced at his watch and filled up three glasses with port. One bumper, said he to the success of our little expedition, and now it is high time we were off. Have your pistol, Watson? I have my old service revolver in my desk. You had best take it, then. It is well to be prepared. I see that the cab is at the door. I ordered it for half-past six. It was a little past seven before we reached the Westminster Wharf and found our launch awaiting us. Holmes eyed it critically. Is there anything to mark it as a police boat? Yes, that green lamp at the side. Then take it off. The small change was made, we stepped on board, and the ropes were cast off. Jones, Holmes, and I sat in the stern. There was one man at the rudder, one to tend the engines, and two burly police inspectors forward. Where to? asked Jones. To the tower. Tell them to stop opposite Jacobson's yard. Our craft was evidently a very fast one. We shot past the long lines of loaded barges, as though they were stationary. Holmes smiled with satisfaction as we overhauled a river steamer and left her behind us. "'We ought to be able to catch anything on the river,' he said. "'Well, hardly that, but there are not many launches to beat us.' "'We shall have to catch the Aurora, and she has a name for being a clipper. I will tell you how the land lies, Watson. You recollect how annoyed I was at being balked by so small a thing?' "'Yes.' Well, I gave my mind a thorough rest by plunging into a chemical analysis. One of the greatest statesmen has said that a change of work is the best rest. So it is. When I had succeeded in dissolving the hydrocarbon which I was at work at, I came back to our problem of the Sholtos, and got the whole matter out again. My boys have been up the river and down the river without result. The launch was not at any landing stage or wharf, nor had it returned. Yet it could hardly have been scuttled to hide their traces— though that always remained as a possible hypothesis if all else failed. I knew this man Small had a certain degree of low cunning, but I did not think him capable of anything in the nature of delicate finesse. That is usually a product of higher education. I then reflected that since he had certainly been in London some time, as we had evidence that he maintained a continual watch over Pondicherry Lodge, he could hardly leave at a moment's notice, but would need some little time if it were only a day to arrange his affairs. That was the balance of probability at any rate. It seems to me to be a little weak, said I. It is more probable that he had arranged his affairs before ever he set out upon his expedition. No, I hardly think so. This lair of his would be too valuable a retreat, in case of need for him to give it up until he was sure that he could do without it. But a second consideration struck me. Jonathan Small must have felt that the peculiar appearance of his companion, however much he must have top-coated him, would give rise to gossip, and possibly be associated with this Norwood tragedy. He was quite sharp enough to see that. They had started from their headquarters under the cover of darkness, and he would wish to get back before it was broad light. Now, it was half-past three o'clock, according to Mrs. Smith, when they got to the boat. It would be quite bright, and people would be about in an hour or so. Therefore, I argued, they did not go very far. 
they paid Smith well to hold his tongue, reserved his launch for the final escape, and hurried to their lodging with a treasure box. In a couple of nights, when they had time to see what view the papers took, and whether there was any suspicion, they would make their way under cover of darkness to some ship at Gravesend or in the Downs, where no doubt they had already arranged for passages to the Americas or the colonies. But the launch? They could not have taken that to their lodgings. Quite so. I argued that the launch must be no great way off in spite of its invisibility. I then put myself in the place of Small, and looked at it as a man in his capacity would. He would probably consider that to send back the launch or to keep it at a wharf would make pursuit easy if the police did happen to get on his track. How, then, could he conceal the launch and yet have her at hand when wanted? I wondered what I should do myself if I were in his shoes. I could only think of one way of doing it. I might land the launch over to some boat builder or repairer, with directions to make a trifling change in her. She would then be removed to his shed or yard, and so be effectually concealed, while at the same time I could have her at a few hours' notice. That seems simple enough. It is just these very simple things which are extremely liable to be overlooked. However, I determined to act on the idea. I started at once in this harmless seaman's rig, and inquired at all the yards down the river. I drew blank at fifteen, but at the sixteenth, Jacobson's, I learned that the Aurora had been handed over to them two days ago by a wooden-legged man with some trivial direction as to her rudder. There ain't not a miss with her rudder, said the foreman. There she lies with red streaks. At that moment, who should come down but Mordecai Smith, the missing owner? He was rather the worse for liquor. I should not, of course, have known him, but he bellowed out his name and the name of his launch. I want it tonight at eight o'clock, said he. Eight o'clock sharp, mind, for I have two gentlemen who won't be kept waiting. They had evidently paid him well, for he was very flush of money, chucking shillings about to the men. I followed him out some distance, but he subsided into an alehouse. So I went back to the yard, and happening to pick up one of my boys on the way, I stationed him as a sentry over the launch. He is a sand at water's edge, and wave his handkerchief to us when they start. We shall be lying off in the stream, and it will be a strange thing if we do not take men, treasure, and all. You have planned it all very neatly, whether they are the right men or not, said Jones. But if the affair were in my hands, I should have had a body of police in Jacobson's yard and arrested them when they came down. Which would have been never. This man Small is a pretty shrewd fellow. He would send a scout on ahead, and if anything made him suspicious, lie snug for another week. But you might have stuck to Mordecai Smith, and so been led to their hiding place, said I. In that case, I should have wasted my day. I think it is a hundred to one against Smith knowing where they live. As long as he has liquor and good pay, why should he ask questions? They send him messages what to do. No, I thought over every possible course, and this is the best. While this conversation had been proceeding, we had been shooting the long series of bridges which spanned the Thames. As we passed the city, the last rays of sun were gilding the cross upon the summit of St. Paul's. It was twilight before we reached the tower. That is Jacobson's yard, pointing to a bristle of masts and rigging on the Surrey side. Cruise gently up, and down here under cover of this string of lighters. He took a pair of night glasses from his pocket, and gazed some time at the shore. I see my sentry at his post, he remarked. No sign of a handkerchief. Suppose we go downstream a short way and lie in wait for them, said Jones eagerly. We were all eager by this time, even the policemen and the stokers, who had a very vague idea of what was going forward. You have no right to take anything for granted, Holmes answered. It is certainly ten to one that they go downstream, but we cannot be certain. From this point we can see the entrance of the yard, and they can hardly see us. It will be a clear night and plenty of light. We must stay where we are. 
See how the folk swarm over yonder in the gaslight. They are coming from work in the yard. Dirty-looking rascals, but I suppose every one has some little immortal spark concealed about him. You would not think it to look at them. There is no a priori probability about it. A strange enigma is man. Someone calls him a soul concealed in an animal, I suggested. Winwood Reed is good upon the subject, said Holmes. He remarks that, while the individual man is an insoluble puzzle, in the aggregate he becomes a mathematical certainty. You can, for example, never foretell what any one man will do, but you can say with precision what an average number will be up to. Individuals vary, but percentages remain consistent. So says the statistician. But do I see a handkerchief? Surely there's a white flutter over yonder. Yes, it is your boy, I cried. I can see him plainly. And there is the aurora, exclaimed Holmes, and going like the devil. Full speed ahead, engineer. Make after that launch with the yellow light. By heaven, I shall never forgive myself if she proves down the heels of us. She had slipped unseen through the yard entrance, and passed behind two or three small craft, so that she had fairly got her speed up before we saw her. Now she was flying down the stream, near into the shore, going at a tremendous rate. Jones looked gravely at her and shook his head. She is very fast, he said. I doubt if we shall catch her. We must catch her, cried Holmes between his teeth. Keep it on, Stokers. Make her do all she can. If we burn the boat, we must have them. We were fairly after her now. The furnaces roared, and the powerful engines whizzed and clanked like a great metallic heart. Her sharp, steep prow cut through the river water and sent two rolling waves to the right and left of us. With every throb of the engines, we sprang and quivered like a living thing. One great yellow lantern in our bow threw a long, flickering funnel of light in front of us. Right ahead, a dark blur upon the water showed where the aurora lay, and the swirl of white foam behind her spoke of the pace at which she was going. We flashed past barges, steamers, merchant vessels, in and out, behind this one and round the other. Voices hailed us out of the darkness, but still the aurora thundered on, and we still followed close upon her track. Pilot on, men! Pilot on! cried Holmes, looking down into the engine room, while the fierce glow from below beat upon his eager, aquiline face. Get every pound of steam you can! I think we gain a little, said Jones, with his eyes on the aurora. I'm sure of it, said I. We shall be up with her in a very few minutes. At that moment, however, as our evil fate would have it, a tug with three barges in tow blundered in between us. It was only by putting our helm hard down that we avoided the collision, and before we could round them and recover our way, the aurora had gained a good two hundred yards. She was still, however, well in view, and the murky, uncertain twilight was settling into a clear, starlit night. Our boilers were strained to their utmost, and the frail shell vibrated and creaked with the fierce energy which was driving us along. We had shot through the pool, past the West India docks, down the long Deptford Reach, and up again after rounding the Isle of Dogs. The dull blur in front of us resolved itself now clearly enough into the dainty aurora. Jones turned our searchlight upon her, so that we could plainly see the figures upon her deck. One man sat by the stern, with something black between his knees over which he stooped. Beside him lay a dark mass, which looked like a Newfoundland dog. The boy held the tiller, while against the red glare of the furnace I could see old Smith, stripped to the waist, and shoveling coals for dear life. They may have had some doubt at first as to whether we were really pursuing them, but now, as we followed every winding and turning which they took, there could no longer be any question about it. At Greenwich, we were about three hundred paces behind them. At Blackwall, we could not have been more than two hundred and fifty. I have coursed many creatures in many countries during my checkered career, but never did any sport give me such a wild thrill as this mad flying manhunt down the Thames. 
Steadily, we drew in upon them, yard by yard. In the silence of the night, we could hear the panting and clanking of the machinery. The man in the stern still crouched upon the deck, and his arms were moving as though he were busy, while every now and then he would look up and measure with a glance the distance which still separated us. Nearer we came, and nearer. Jones yelled to them to stop. We were not more than four boat lengths behind them, both boats flying at a tremendous pace. It was a clear reach of the river, with barking level upon one side and the melancholy plumstead marshes upon the other. At our hail, the man in the stern sprang up from the deck and shook his two clinched fists at us, cursing the while in a high, cracked voice. He was a good-sized, powerful man, and as he stood poising himself with legs astride, I could see that from the thigh downwards there was but a wooden stump upon the right side. At the sound of his strident, angry cries, there was movement in the huddled bundle upon the deck. It straightened itself into a little black man, the smallest I have ever seen, with a great misshapen head and a shock of tangled, disheveled hair. Holmes had already drawn his revolver, and I whipped out mine at the sight of this savage, distorted creature. He was wrapped in some sort of dark ulster or blanket, which left only his face exposed, but that face was enough to give a man a sleepless night. Never have I seen features so deeply marked with all bestiality and cruelty. His small eyes glowed and burned with a somber light, and his thick lips were writhed back from his teeth, which grinned and chattered at us in a half-animal fury. "'Fire if he raises his hand,' said Holmes quietly. We were within a boat's length by this time, and almost within touch of our quarry. I can see the two of them now as they stood, the white man with his legs far apart, shrieking out curses, and the unhallowed dwarf with his hideous face and his strong yellow teeth gnashing at us in the light of a lantern. It was well that we had so clear a view of him. Even as we looked, he plucked out from under his covering a short, round piece of wood, like a school ruler, and clapped it to his lips. Our pistols rang out together. He whirled around, threw up his arms, and with a kind of choking cough, fell sideways into the stream. I caught one glimpse of his venomous, menacing eyes amid the white swirl of the waters. At the same moment, the wooden-legged man threw himself upon the rudder and put it hard down so that his boat made straight in for the southern bank while we shot past her stern, only clearing her by a few feet. We were round after her in an instant, but she was already near the bank. It was a wild and desolate place, where the moon glimmered upon a wide expanse of marshland, with pools of stagnant water and beds of decaying vegetation. The launch, with a dull thud, ran up upon the mud bank, with a bow in the air and a stern flush with the water. The fugitive sprang out, but his stump instantly sank its whole length into the sodden soil. In vain he struggled and writhed. Not one step could he possibly take either forwards or backwards. He yelled in impotent rage and kicked frantically into the mud with his other foot, but his struggles only bored his wooden pin deeper into the sticky bank. When we brought our launch alongside him, he was so firmly anchored that it was only by throwing the end of a rope over his shoulders that we were able to haul him out and drag him like some evil fish over our side. The two smiths, father and son, sat sullenly in their launch, but came aboard meekly enough when commanded. The Aurora herself we hauled off and made fast to our stern. A solid iron chest of Indian workmanship stood upon the deck. This, there could be no question, was the same that it contained all the ill-omened treasure of the Sholtos. There was no key but it was of considerable weight, so we transferred it carefully to our own little cabin. As we steamed slowly upstream again, we flashed our searchlight in every direction, but there was no sign of the islander. Somewhere in the dark ooze at the bottom of the Thames lie the bones of that strange visitor to our shores. See here, said Holmes, pointing to the wooden hatchway. We were hardly quick enough with our pistols. There, sure enough, just behind where we had been standing, stuck one of those murderous darts which we knew so well. It must have whizzed between us the instant that we fired. Holmes smiled at it, and shrugged his shoulders in an easy fashion, but I confess that it turned me sick to think of the horrible death which had passed so close to us that night. 
Someday, I keep telling myself that one of these amazing listeners to this podcast are going to be interested in helping me edit. That would be a dream come true. If uh, one of you guys would be interested in volunteering, or if somebody would be interested in supporting the podcast through, uh, there's just a support button that you can punch right there in anchor.fm slash another world audiobooks link is down below uh either one of those will allow me to hire an editor which will allow me to put out more content which is what i want to do for you guys so if one of you guys out there i know there's quite a few people that listen to this podcast i'm guessing that somebody somebody would be willing so if, uh, if that's you i would just want to say if you want my eternal gratitude forever and ever then <laughs> go ahead and consider one of those options if not don't worry i'm gonna still create uh, free audiobooks for you guys just i want the episodes to be longer i want to be able to provide more content for you guys so the best thing that you can do in the meantime is just to share the podcast the more people that listen the better chance i have of being able to do that here soon so thanks for sharing the podcast and listening you guys are the best you rock thank you so much for being your awesome selves talk to you next time